if, if you would, flip to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21, if you will stand for the reading of God's word. For using the Black Pew Bible, that's on page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Thank you, Mallory. Um, please remain standing. I'm going to pray for my brother Jonathan. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the way we hear your word on Sunday morning is through the preaching of your word. God, I pray that you would speak through my brother Jonathan, that you would give him boldness, you would give him confidence, not in himself, his words, but in you, your words, and your desire for your word to be preached rightly, correctly. I pray that you would... Um, as a congregation, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. I pray that you would shape our hearts through the preaching of your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Help us to live lives to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Thanks for showing up, Delta Church, again today. Um, we are trucking through First Peter. We are going to be looking at verses 17 through 21 today of chapter 1. The big idea that we, we see throughout all of 1 Peter is this idea of um, the cross. Peter is lifting up the cross of Jesus Christ and he's showing us what does it look like to live our life accordingly. And so we're calling this series The Way of the Cross. Um, and so even today when we come down to verses 17 through 21, even though this idea has been operating in the background, what we're going to see in specifically verses 18 through 21 is going to be the first big push from Peter's mouth as he is writing to the elect exiles of Asia Minor. He's going to be pressing the cross, Jesus Christ crucified for them, right before them. And he's going to make a direct connection to, to their lives. What does it look like to live your life accordingly in right conduct because Jesus Christ has redeemed you from your futile ways, ways of sin? I, I, lo I love culture. I love, I love this idea, this idea of culture, this, this idea that God has created man and woman in his image. And one of the ways we express the image of the Father is we are able to create and, and to think and to produce music and, and art and architecture and building and all of these, these various things. And in a way, we are imaging God. God is a creator God, and he, his, we, his people, are able to, to do that. 
Um, and the cool thing I like about culture is you can, you can step back and look across culture. And I'm not even talking about specifically in the realms of the church, but you can step back and look across the, the edges, the realms of, of culture, and just really get a, a pulse and lay your finger on just what exactly is going on in the culture. What kind of music's being produced? How are people thinking? What kind of movies are being produced? How are, how are people crunching maybe politics and all these, these various things? And one of the things I like to do just every, every so often is just go and find, find a website and just look at movie trailers to see what kind of movies are being produced. How, what are people thinking and what are people desiring to make and what kind of ideas are being promoted and, and things um, of this nature. Um, and it wasn't too long ago, about a year ago in 2013, there was an, an interesting movie um, that was um, being promoted. It was a movie called The Purge. Um, the Purge is an action horror film. Um, and it takes place in the near future. Um, and in this world that these directors made for this movie called The Purge, it's basically a dystopian future. It's a future to where a government rules and reigns over, over all things. Um, but due, due to crime and the various ills that come from crime, the government has set up one day a year for a 12-hour period where this 12-hour period, what they do is they call that 12-hour period the purge. And the idea is that during this 12-hour period, there is no fear of punishment for crimes committed. Basically, in that 12-hour period, people can just go haywire. The government's basically going to turn a blind eye. There is no, no fear of judgment, no fear of going to jail for, for crimes committed. There's basically two, two rules that these people have to follow. If you don't break those two rules, everything is fair, fair game. And as you can imagine, this time is just a time of just pure, pure chaos in the movie. Um, this time of purging is just one atrocious act after another. And when you step back and you just look at it, you know, I, I, don't, I don't condone what's going on in that movie, but that movie, The Purge, becomes an excellent example of people who conduct themselves with no restraint people who conduct themselves with no fear because the idea of future judgment has been completely removed. They have heard from their government, you will not be punished for anything done during these these 12 hours. So what they do in turn is go, because we will not be judged, we will not be thrown in jail, they draw the conclusion that anything goes with their present conduct and that is exactly what they do. It turns into 12 hours of just pure, pure chaos. But yet as we see, turn our attention to 1 Peter verses 17 through 21 of chapter 1, that this concept of future judgment and how it affects our present conduct did not originate with the screenwriters of this movie. Truly, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes nailed it. He says, There's nothing new under the sun. The writers, the screenwriters of this movie are, in a sense, ripping off something that was a principle, that was an idea that even Peter himself was talking about in the first century. In our text today, what you're going to see is this. Peter is going to take this same idea of future judgment and our present conduct, but he's going to dump it on its head as he applies it to the believers of Asia Minor. These Christians know God as Father. They also know God as an impartial judge who will judge each man according to his deeds on that future day of judgment. 
And because these believers know this to be true, Peter turns to the third command in this section of Scripture. So if you remember, we, we, took, we took four weeks to unpack what Peter was saying in verses 1 through 12. And, and we were using this phrase, this is Peter's nexus. This is, his, this is his center. This is his nucleus. This is his dense theological argument. And everything spins off and around everything that he says in verses 1 through through 12 of chapter 1. Then we, we said last week, that first word of verse 13 that you, you see there in your copy of Scripture, that word therefore says everything that I've just said in verses 1 through 12, because that is true, let me tell you now what it looks like for your present conduct to reflect the reality of the triune God in the way that He has saved you. And He turns to this big idea of this is what right living looks like in light of the gospel that's been applied to you. He does this in verses 13 through 21, and he does it with three commands. And all of those verses, in verses 13 through 21, all of those words hang off of three specific commands. We looked at two last week. They were to hope. Hope in grace. Not only were they to hope in grace, but they were to be a people who were to be holy. But Peter doesn't leave it there. He turns today and he gives us the last big idea of what this this future grace looks like is the way it impacts our, our present holiness. And we're going to see this in the third command he gives us found in verse 17. These believers were to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile. From these verses, Peter's going to drive us to see this one overarching point. Christ's redemptive work is the motivation for a believer's conduct. Christ's redemptive work is the motivation for a believer's conduct. Believers are to conduct themselves with fear because they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So what you're going to see is this, that that Peter's leading up to a crescendo. In verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, he gives us these three commands. Set your your hope on on future grace. You are to to be holy. This isn't optional. And your last command I'm going to give you is this, that you are to conduct yourselves with fear. And he ramps up into this grand crescendo of, now let me tell you why. What is your motivation for setting your hope? What is your motivation for being holy? What is your main ultimate motivation for conducting yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile while you're living life here on this earth before you enter into that final salvation where you live life eternal with Christ our Savior. And he says this, I will, I will show you what is your motivation. You are to do this because you have been ransomed. And he's going to press the idea of the cross of Jesus Christ right onto them and make a direct connection for them. So what we're going to see in verses 17 through 21, we're just going to divide it into two, to two chunks. Verse 17 is going to give us this idea. You are to conduct yourself with fear. And it's the big idea that's going to overarch and cast its shadow over our verses today. And then we're going to ask the question, why? Why conduct yourself with fear? And he answers this. Peter says, you conduct yourself with fear because you were redeemed. You were ransomed. And we're going to see that work itself out in verses 18 through 21. 
So look in your copy of Scripture. Look at verse 17. Peter says this, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear is the main idea of verses 17 through 21. Last week, believers were to be holy in all their conduct, but this week, Peter builds upon this concept. Their conduct is also to be done with fear. And in order to stress the idea of conduct, Peter couches his command as part of an if-then statement. If you know X, then the right outworking of this is for you to do Y. If you call on him as father, which you do, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, which he does, then do this one thing. You are to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We talked about this back when we looked at the very opening weeks of of 1 Peter. Back in verse 1 where Peter says that we are elect exiles. We unpack this idea of what does it mean to be exiles? What does it mean to be to be dispersed. And we, we said this, we, we are spiritual exiles in this world. This, this world is not our home. Because we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, what we see around us is not the end game. You have been redeemed to something greater. We have a new citizenship in heaven. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom because Jesus Christ has saved us And Peter says throughout the time of our exile, we show our citizenship to be different from those who are just merely citizens of this world as we conduct ourselves with fear. Now, the big question we have to ask is, how are we to understand fear? That's not a big concept that, that we like to talk about in the realm of Christianity. There's not a lot of people holding conferences on on biblical fear. Um, You don't see the big conference circuit with all the big speakers going around touting, we are going to unpack and chew on, meditate, marinate in the idea of fear. I I feel like that one probably wouldn't be a big flop. You probably don't have the big names of of Christianity coming and and promoting this idea. But it is a biblical idea. It's right here in front of us. Conduct yourselves with fear. So we have to ask the question, well, well, what 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 does Peter mean by fear? See, what Peter is not talking about is this negative view that we often have of fear. One where people are paralyzed in their actions and and marked by anxiety, the the, the fear of, I just don't know what's going going to happen, so it just sort of paralyzes you in the moment, and and life just starts spinning around you, and there's this idea of, I'm I'm scared of what might happen, I'm I'm scared because I don't know what the future is, I'm scared because I'm not in control in this moment, so instead of leading me to trust in God, it's a fear of paralysis, and it just sort of freezes you up in that moment. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about the spin-off of that idea, which is anxiety to where you're fearing something. You have no control over it. You don't know what's going on. And so what it does is it just gives you a a nervous soul, a sweaty soul, where you're just just chewing and you're you're churning in anxiety and you're just wringing your hands because you just don't know what's going on. See, Peter's not talking about that kind of fear either. He's not talking about a negative view of fear. That idea of paralysis of action and being marked by anxiety. See, Jesus Christ frees us from this kind of fear when the Holy Spirit comes, opens our heart, and applies, applies the gospel to us. But yet there, there is a biblical understanding of fear that is right for a Christian to have. 
and the, and the phrase that encapsulates this full-orbed understanding of right biblical fear is this phrase called the fear of the Lord. To know the fear of the Lord is to have a genuine faith that expresses itself in a reverential awe toward God. And see, I mean, we just don't have time to unpack this. I mean, this could be, this could be a sermon series in itself, but this idea of fear that Peter's talking about, this idea of the fear of the Lord that Peter's pre- presenting before these believers, when he says, conduct yourselves with fear, conduct yourselves in the fear of the Lord, I mean, it's this full-orbed sense to where, yes, there, there is this sense of, of terror and dread that we are to have as we, as we think about God, but it's not just terror and dread. It's, it's the sense of having a high and awesome wonder of the awesome and living God, but it's, it's not just that. You have, to, you have to pull in all of these things and understand that, that it's a sense of both of these things coming together. Hebrews 10 says this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and it's, it's his warning, it's his, his admonition for people to, to say, it is good and right to understand your relationship to the Father. It's like what Peter's not saying there, or what the writer of the Hebrews is, is not saying in Hebrews 10 is this, it's, a, it's an awesome wonderful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's saying, no, there, there, there's something that's rightly going. Man, God is God and I am not God. And there, there's a sense where we approach our living God realizing that He is utterly different from us. But when you go to Psalm chapter 5, it employs that same idea of fear, but, but here it mixes it together with this, this sense of high and awesome wonder. Psalmist says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. So he's, he's exulting, God, God, your, your steadfast love is abundant. I get to enter your house. I'm going to come and bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So there's this sense where through worship he comes and the psalmist is saying, it is a privilege to come into the very presence of the living God, a high and awesome magnificent God, I will enter your holy temple in the fear of you. So there's a sense where you have to bleed both of these things together. And as you bleed both of these things together, this idea of of terror, dread, the sense of high and awesome wonder, and as you come together, you start to mold a a more full orb sense of what it means to have a proper fear of the Lord. See, godly fear is characterized by total allegiance to the one true God. So when Peter takes this idea of the fear of the Lord and he packs it into this one little word, then he, he takes that idea of fear and he couples it with our conduct, conduct yourselves with fear, conduct yourselves in light of what you know to be true about the fear of the Lord. What Peter's saying is this, that godly fear is characterized by total allegiance to the one true God. To conduct yourself in the fear of the Lord means that your life will express itself in holy living. See, the motivation for living in fear is explained in the first part of of verse 17. So so Peter comes with this imperative. He comes comes with this command. You, sir, you, ma'am, are to conduct yourselves with fear. The motivation for this, all you got to do is slide back to the beginning of verse 17, and he tells you. It's the if part of the if-then statement. If you call on him as father, if you call on him as judge, who judges impartially according to each one's one's deeds. 
the one believers call on as father is also the one who will judge them impartially on the last day. This is the motivation for living in fear, for conducting yourself in fear. Act a certain way. Let your life be marked out in this way if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. See, believers call on God as father and judge. Peter grabs two ideas where if you talk to the average person on the street, what they would say is God is either father or God is either judge. But for Peter, there is no disconnect between these two. I mean, all you got to do is just go, go have random conversations with, with those who are inside your workplace, who are inside the areas where you move back and forth in life and your neighbors and family and conversation. Most people will say, well, well my God's a God of love. My, my, my God's a father. He's tender. He's loving. His care. That, that angry God of the Old Testament, that God who's a judge, no, 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 no. That, that's not my God. My God is the New Testament God, the fatherly God. Then you've got... Then you've got angry bullhorn guy who's standing out in the corner and screaming and yelling at people. And if you were come to talk to him, what he would say is this. No, 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 no. My God is the God who is a judge. He's going to judge sinners. But what we need to do is come alongside that guy and go, man, brother, that's good. That's right. That's an attribute of who, who God is. But that's not the full orbed sense of who the Father is. For Peter, the imagery of a loving and kind father perfectly complements the imagery of God as judge. Notice that Peter describes God as judge in two ways. First, he judges impartially. God shows no favoritism in his judgments. He is a God who cannot be bribed. God's universal standard of judgment is his holiness, and it is to this bar that all must rise. Nobody can escape this universal standard. It's not good for this group of people, but not good for this group of people. God doesn't hold these people to a higher standard than look upon these people and hold them to a lower standard. No, everybody falls under the same bar of judgment. You must be holy as God is holy. There is no impartiality with God in this area. Then Peter says, not only as judge is God impartial, but God the judge is going to judge something. He's going to do what his title says. He's going to judge according to each one's deeds. And again, this is, this is a concept that's sort of hard for us to understand because we're so anti-judging in the Christian world. Well, don't, don't judge me. This is my world. I can do things like I want to in a way, way that I want to do it. Most people go and try to rip off Matthew chapter 7 where they say we can't judge because Jesus Christ said don't judge others lest you judge yourself. We, we're, we're so anti-judging, but we, we rob ourselves of a full-orbed view of who God is if we read verses like this and we're somehow revolted and want to turn away nauseous because we see Peter describing God as judge who will judge things. He's going to judge my deeds. He's going to judge your deeds. The idea of future judgment according to works is a common scriptural theme found in the Old and New Testament. When you look here and you see Peter saying, God is Father, God is Judge, He judges impartially and He judges according to each one's deeds, he is not breaking new ground here. Peter is flowing in line with what the common thought of Scripture has been all the way 
stemming back to the Old Testament. The psalmist in Psalm 62 says this, For you will render to a man according to his works. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 17 says this on behalf of God. God saying, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Why? To give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his deeds. So that's from from God through the prophet Jeremiah. You have Jesus himself in Matthew 16 saying this. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Well, what, are you going, what is the Son of Man going to do, Jesus, when he comes with his angels in the glory of his Father? Jesus says, well, this is what's going to happen. Then the Son of Man will repay each person according to what he has done. The Apostle Paul, flowing right here in the same vein with the Apostle Peter. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Why must we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Paul says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, we have to remember that no conflict exists between this idea, future judgment according to works and God's grace. Good works are evidence that God has truly caused a person to be born again. See, the moment you start talking about God judging people on that future day for works done, people start to get a little squeamish in their seats because what they say is, well, what about grace? Where's grace at abounding in this formula? How in the world can, can God judge me for works if I'm supposed to be judged and folded into the the family of God because of grace. And what Peter's, Peter's not saying is, a, he's not saying there's a disconnect there. He's saying because you have received grace, you are to go and do good works. And the evidence that you have had grace applied to you is because you have the right and proper conduct in your life reflecting what is true of you back here. We have to remember that no conflict exists between future judgment according to works and God's grace. Good works are evidence that God has truly caused a person to be born again. And this is exactly what Peter is driving home. What you get is this sense here that Peter, after having unpacked this grand and glorious idea of verses 1 through 12, then going, okay... Let's get, let's get really practical here. Then he switches with that word therefore, then starts working 13 through 21, that he's, he's contemplating something. He's not just satisfied to promote doctrine for the sake of doctrine. He's satisfied to promote doctrine for the sake of practical application that exhorts the body so that they go forward as a missional witness of Jesus Christ into every area of their life. It's the sense of Peter stepping back and contemplating the final judgment that will come where believers will be assessed by their works and heaven and hell will be at stake. But Peter's exhortation to conduct yourself with fear is him teaching that a genuine fear of judgment hinders believers from giving in to the idea that they are free to disobey God. Conduct yourselves with fear. There's the command. Now, I don't, this is semi-tangential, but I don't know how, how you guys read your Bible. 
But, but often, we don't ask questions, one, but we often don't ask the right questions. See, the question that immediately comes to my mind is this. If, if Peter's telling me to conduct myself with fear, the immediate question I have is, why? Why should I do this? See, the question why is often looked down upon, mainly because I have little kids. The why masters. Eat your vegetables. Why? Clean your room. Why? It's time for bed. Why? Going to church today. Why? 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 Eventually, you're just like, I'm about to, about to choke you out. <laughs> why? You know, I was like, come on, man. Why has got to stop, you know? We get weary of the question, why? But God the Father delights to answer the question, why? Ask questions of the scriptures. And it benefits us here when we turn to verses 18 through 21. Peter, you want me to conduct myself with fear? Why? Peter says, well, let me tell you. Know this one idea and let me unpack it for you in four verses. Know this, you were ransomed. You were redeemed. You were bought back with a price from sin, and you were ransomed from your futile ways, and you were ransomed to something. This is why you are to conduct yourselves in the fear of the Lord. So after unpacking his main idea in verse 17, Peter turns to the reason believers should live this way. The redemptive work of Christ is to be the motivation for them to conduct themselves with fear. Peter calls them to know the cost of the cross. He's going to press before them. You've got to watch his language here. He's going to push before them. You need to know how precious, how how costly, how beautiful, how magnificent your redemption is. Look at what the currency of your salvation price was. And he's going to hold up the magnificent gospel of the cross upon which Jesus Christ died. And he's going to work up into this sort of doxological worship praise outburst of looking at the cross and glorying in the cross and saying, this is true of you. They once were running a hell-bound race, but now they are a people that have been redeemed. God intervened in their life. God ransomed them with the precious blood of Christ. There's a reason why we pick and choose certain songs to sing up here. Songs that extol the beauty of what I've just said. One of the songs that we sing is a song by the band called Citizens Made Alive where he says, you have bought me back with the riches of your amazing grace and your relentless love. I'm made alive forever. I have with you life forever. By your grace, I've been saved. We sing songs like that because songs like that unpack the beauty of verses 18 and 19 and 20 and 21. We want to press before you this idea that Peter is pressing before the believers of Asia Minor. That Peter is on a mission to magnify the redemption that has come to these believers. So what Peter does is these four verses, 18, 19, 20, 21, is he unpacks the beauty of their redemption. 
And he does it basically in three ways. First, he shows them their ransom was from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. Their former lifestyle was futile. It was marked by sin. These Gentiles, before they embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith, were lovers of sin. They centered their life around sin. This was their inheritance from their forefathers. They were slaves to sin, and the entirety of their life conformed to the passions of their ignorance. But just as a slave can be ransomed out of slavery into a new life of freedom, so too these believers of Asia Minor were ransomed out of slavery to sin into a new life with God. Slavery... As it relates to first century A.D. here, this world that Peter lived in is not like the idea of slavery that we know it in our country. The idea of slavery oftentimes was seen as a good thing here, where people willingly went and gave themselves, sometimes unwillingly, if they were soldiers who were brought back from war. But the majority of people were people who attached themselves to a master so they could work for this person. But there was a way for you, if you did not want to do that anymore, to be able to be bought out of that. And it's this idea, it's this world, it's this context that Peter is going to couch this idea of of ransom, of being redeemed, of being purchased out of something, being purchased into something. Just as a slave could be ransomed out of slavery into a new life of freedom, Peter's going to paint a word picture. So too, these believers of Asia Minor were ransomed out of slavery to sin into a new life with God. Second, not not only was their ransom from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers, but the ransom was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. For a slave in Peter's day, the purchase price of your freedom was costly. Your ransom came at a high price. It took a lot of silver and gold to secure somebody's freedom from slavery. Yet, as precious and costly as these things are, no amount of silver and gold could ever buy us back from sin. Our ransom to be purchased out of the slave master's grips of sin, our ransom demanded something infinitely more precious than gold or silver. Our ransom demanded the currency of blood. What Peter teaches is that the blood of Christ is the means by which believers are redeemed. Jesus was our sacrifice, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb that is without blemish or spot. Jesus is the suffering servant Isaiah that, like a lamb, was led to the slaughter so that many might be accounted righteous. Jesus was our perfect sacrifice because he lived a perfect, sinless life. They were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from their forefathers. They were ransomed not with things such as silver or gold, but ransomed with something infinitely more precious, the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Then third, he says, their ransom, their redemption came through the crucifixion of Christ 
the Christ and his crucifixion was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The crucifixion of Christ was God's redeeming plan from the beginning. When we come and see and read about Jesus Christ being pinned to the tree so that the wrath of God could be poured out on him, not for his sins, but for our sins, this wasn't sort of a plan that just sort of came up out of nowhere. This was a plan that was plan A from the beginning. Peter's exhortation to these believers is this. The good news of the cross, it was made manifest in the last times for your sake. These believers of Asia Minor are actually getting to live in the time of the climax of redemptive history. I mean, we went and looked back at verses 10 through 12 several, several weeks ago where, where Peter was saying, you, you have to understand the glorious past that you have been grafted into because salvation has come to you. You need to know that prophets were talking about this, wanting to know what was coming. Prophets were yearning to look into this and understand what in the world am I, what am I talking about here? God, God is this for our time? Who, who is this going to be? Who is going to be this Christ, the Messiah, that perfect final sacrifice? Peter caps this whole thing off saying even the angels of heaven are looking into this and when he says this idea that, but now, this thing that was foreknown, this idea that Jesus Christ would redeem people back from sin through the shedding of his precious blood, this thing that was known before the foundation of the world, you, you are getting to live in this time. And it's for the sake of you. Christians believe in God through the work of Christ. And this God raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory. And all of this is so that our faith and hope would be in God. God who displayed his power by raising Jesus from the dead. When we look at verses 17 through 21, Peter's making this argument. Christ's redemptive work is the motivation for a believer's holy conduct. The redemption we have through the work of Jesus Christ is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And it's been manifested to you and it's been manifested to me. See, we've been purchased back from the slavery of sin with the precious blood of Christ. That's not just true of these believers of Asia Minor. It's true for you and it's true for me, for those of us who are believers. The blood of Christ was the costliest of currency. Peter teaches that in light of the gospel that has been applied to you, there is a right way to live that will prove that you understand the confession you're making, that you understand the the gospel. See, when Peter comes along and he says something like this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Hey, get your act together. Conduct yourselves in a certain way. We could misunderstand that. And somehow draw the conclusion that Peter's just a moralist. Well, Peter just wants me to be moral. Peter just wants me to do good. We might misunderstand Peter to be saying, saying something like this. Hey, just do good things. Just do right. Don't, don't be marked by bad, but just, just do good and right things. And we, we miss the point of what Peter's saying because Peter isn't driving and pushing moralism. Do good things so that God will be pleased with you. He's not saying that. 
His push to be holy in conduct, to conduct yourself in fear, is always rooted in grace first. Because grace has been applied to you, you can live freely in this way. See, Peter's not a moralist. Peter was not a legalist. Peter was not promoting the argument that if you perform well, God will accept you. He was not saying that either. God isn't judging deeds as the basis for salvation. See, because this is another way that we could see this and somehow draw the wrong conclusion. We might hear Peter mistakenly saying this, well, conduct yourselves with fear. Well, why do I need to do that, Peter? Will God accept me if I do good things? And Peter's saying, no, God isn't judging deeds as the basis for salvation. He's judging deeds as the evidence of salvation. But we also have to understand this, that Peter was not pushing for license either. See, these are the two extremes. So often what we do is we hear something like this and we go to one extreme. Conduct yourselves with fear. And the pendulum swings way out here and it's like, okay, all right, Peter, if you want me to conduct myself with fear, I'm going to go hog wild. I'm going to go on works overload. And I'm going to root my identity in works. I'm going to make sure my life is nothing but a load of works. So that way when I stand before God on that final day, what I can do is go, here is my gift for you, God, all of the works that I've ever done. Now, shouldn't I get entrance into heaven? And Peter's going, no, that's, that's insane. And so then someone comes along and says, no, this idea of legalism works or deeds or conduct as the basis for salvation. That's a no-go. Then what we tend to do is swing all the way over to the other side and go, well, if it's not legalistic works, then maybe I'm just free to live however I want to. And the term we often use for that is license. I'm licensed. I'm free. I'm uninhibited. I can do whatever I want to. Hey, God has saved me. And what we do over here is you you think this way because God has saved me at some point in time back in the history of my life. That somehow secures beyond a shadow of a doubt this future idea of salvation that's coming my way. And so we drift over into the error of license. And what we do is say, well, God has saved me. So that means I'm just free to do what I want to. I don't have to obey God. I've got grace. I'm swimming in grace. I'm a lover of grace. Don't you see how free I am in this this ocean of grace. And the person of license says obedience in the presence to God is something we don't have to adhere to. Peter was not pushing for license, somehow making the argument that God has forgiven you. Hey, so feel free to live as you please. See, grace frees us from the toil and tyranny of trying to earn salvation but grace does not free us from obedience manifesting itself in good works. The king of heaven gave up his son to redeem us from sin so that we would go and sin no more. Living a life of holy conduct as the right outworking of the grace that has been extended to us. Through these verses, Peter connecting this idea of know that you were ransomed to the idea of God as father and judge is graciously and lovingly warning all of us. For those of us who confess to be believers in God through the work of Christ, he is asking us this question. Does your life match your confession? Does your life match your confession? 
See, in Christian circles, there's this lie that floats around. If you run around in the world of evangelicalism, if you run around in the world of Christianity long enough, there's this lie that pops up that says this. People can claim one thing, live totally different, and yet still inherit the kingdom of God. They can confess one thing, live a life that's entirely opposite to their confession, and still somehow stroll into the gates of eternity, patting Jesus on their side, saying, look how great and awesome our relationship is. They confess salvation, but they have no conduct to back up their confession. The Apostle Paul comes along and says, this is one of the scariest places to be. Galatians chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the letter to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he does a similar thing as he presses this, because we have to understand, he's talking to believers here. Like Galatians isn't to a letter of unbelievers. He's talking to people saying, there is a right way your life will line up if you truly understand the gospel has been applied to you. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are warning passages. Peter, Paul, graciously and lovingly warn us. These warning passages expose the false hope that many, many, many are resting on. I mean, good grief, my my only assumption is that some of you have had interaction with people who go, yeah, I'm a believer. Then you just step back, you just look at the panorama of the life, and it's a life that is marked by all these things that Paul says our lives should not be marked as if we're believers. It doesn't mean we're doing them perfectly, but that there's a general trajectory in our life of growing in holiness. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. There's even seasons of our life where it's one step forward and two steps back. But what Peter says, what the Apostle John says, what what Paul says is this. If there is no general trajectory in your life of conduct lining up with what is true of your identity as one who has embraced the good news of Jesus Christ, then that is a scary place to be because the warning that comes to us at least three times in these two sections of Scripture is this, that those who have conduct that do not align with their confession will not inherit the kingdom of God. These warning passages expose the false hope that many are resting on. They think that they will escape that future day of judgment because of a past confession of faith when in reality they will face judgment. 
their life simply did not manifest the works to back up their confession. I mean, a perfect illustration of it is this. Like, if someone were to come up to me and go, John, how do I know that you're alive right now? Prove to me, John, that you are alive right now and not dead. What I will not do is do this. Walk over to my filing cabinet, open up my bottom drawer, and pull out my birth certificate. Go, see this piece of paper from 33 years ago? This little eight and a half by 11 that says I was born on February 3rd, 1981. This is proof that I'm alive right now. Like, no, nobody does that. People point to evidences of current conduct that prove I'm alive right now. What I would not do is go, hey, see this birth certificate, but what I would do is just go, look, my heart's beating now. A sign and evidence I'm alive. My, my lungs are breathing. My, my brain is waving, right? These are things that show that I'm alive. I'm alive right now. But what, and that makes sense, like, right? Because I, I could go to a graveyard and I could go, and if I could have a conversation with a corpse, I'd walk up to him and go, friend, I, I see that on your gravestone, the year 1981. Please, please tell me, what are signs and evidence that you are alive right now? Somebody could come along and go, bro, you're talking to a corpse, not going to quite work out, but let me show you this. And they pop out what? The guy's birth certificate. See, that, that doesn't help the guy that's in the grave right now. Just because you have a piece of paper that shows you are alive at one point in time doesn't necessarily mean that you are alive in the moment. And I think this transfers over to the spiritual world as well. Nobody, we should not think this way. John, show me, tell me, what is the sign and evidence that you have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and that in this moment you embrace him, you grasp onto him, you are latching onto him by faith. What I will not do is go, well, back in December of 2000 when I was at SIU Carbondale, part of a collegiate ministry, I repented and turned from my sins. Remember that thing way back then? That's proof and evidence that I have spiritual life now. I won't do that. What I do is I look and go, I made a confession back then, but are there signs of life in me right now that show, yes, I was truly born again in December of 2000? And that's basically what Peter's saying here. What he's saying is this. He's pressing before the people. Do you have conduct? Do you have signs of life? Are there things going on in your world that show you truly understand what the fear of the Lord is, that you truly understand the gospel's been applied to you? You look at the evidences in your life and you go, you know what? I see things that seem to look like new birth has taken place in my life. Yes, Jesus saved me then. But then a year from that point in time, I saw signs of the new birth. Five years later, I saw signs of that new birth. Ten years later, 15 years later, 20 years later. So when I'm laying on my, my deathbed and friends are gathered around and families gather around, and hopefully we're talking about the gospel because that's what I cherish and I love. And someone says, Grandpa, will you, will you just testify? Will you witness about the good news of the gospel? What I won't do is go, well, man, I remember that time way back then, December of 2000. That was a great time. And then somehow don't talk about the current evidences of the signs of grace that have been, have been poured out upon me because of the gospel the, for the present day. 
See, the good news is this, is that we have hope in the gospel. We have hope in the gospel. You see it in verse 21. Christ, whose works are foreknown but now made manifest, are so that we would have faith and hope in God. Peter calls us to set your hope fully on the grace of God. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter is an apostle of hope. In the midst of all of this, what he is saying is this. You have good news. We have the gospel. We have hope for growth. We have hope for change. We have hope for salvation. See, the beauty of what Paul wrote in that section from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he just gives that big laundry list, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But see, you rob yourself if you stop there at verse 10. Because when you go and read verse 11, Paul says this about the believers in Corinth. Such were some of you. That's glorious. See, this isn't Paul just on a soapbox just trying to be a jerk. Hey, look at you guys and how ate up you are. Get your act together. No, he's saying people who have been folded into the people of God, this laundry list of sins, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, a full-orbed trinity. Paul's not saying anything different than what Peter is saying. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, we have been born again to a living hope. God is speaking to us through the scriptures showing us that the gospel is good news. Our conduct is to be a conduct with fear, a fear of the Lord that causes us to cast our gaze upon the redemption that has come to us through the precious blood of Christ so that we would go forth manifesting the glories of Jesus in all that we think, we say, and we do come now to a time in the service, what we're going to do is we're going to respond. For some of us, you've been greatly encouraged. You've heard the words preached to you this morning, and through the words that were preached to you this morning, it's, it's just like, it's like music to your ears. By God's grace, you go, yes, he's been leading me and he's been guiding me in this way. Yes, my conduct, his conduct with fear, my conduct is holy conduct, not because it's anything that I've done, but it's because it's grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. By God's grace, yes, I'm growing. I've still got room to grow, but by God's grace, man, this just fires me up. One of the ways that you're to respond this morning is by responding with worship and praise and by coming, coming to the Lord's table, coming in and taking of the juice, taking of the cup, taking taking up the bread. God has saved you. What the cup represents and what the bread represents is true of you. You can come and you can worship God by saying, God, your blood and your body were poured out and broken for me. So I am worshiping you, God, right now. In light of what I've just heard and the way I've been encouraged, I'm going to respond to you through a chorus of praise. 
and you're going to do that specifically with the, with the act of the Lord's Supper. If that, that is you, you are invited to come. There's a table in the back. There's two tables in the front. Come and respond in this way during, during the time of Lord's Supper. But see, some of you are not quite there. You're not maybe so much encouraged, but you're more, more convicted. Through hearing what Peter says to us from the Scriptures, you recognize that my conduct doesn't quite always line up with my confession. The way you respond this morning is to confess to God. You come to God and you're just honest and open before God. God, I've heard what you said and I see that the general tenor and tone of my life is this. It's not like, you know, 90% out there and like 10%. I, I, I just, I ebb and flow, God. There's no consistent holiness in my life. So what you do is you confess, you repent, you glory in the gospel that the gospel has been applied to you and you make a beeline to Jesus Christ, confessing, embracing him and finding welcome in the Savior's arms. But some of you are maybe recognizing for the first time that your confession is not backed up by anything. You confess to be a Christian, but your actions speak a different word. What you need is the same thing that the previous two need. You need Jesus. What you need is to confess. Own your sin. Recognize it as your sin. It is against a holy God. And what you need is somebody who can mediate in between God and you. And you repent of your sins. You confess your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. And you make a beeline for Jesus Christ, not away from him. There might even be others of you who are recognizing that good grief, you're not even in the realm of making a confession of salvation. Your confession is, like, I'm not even on that path. I'm not even confessing to be a Christian. You don't even know what it's like to be ransomed from the futile ways of sin, but the good news for you is the good news of the cross, that Jesus was pinned to that tree, taking the wrath of God that was due you for your sins so that you could be made right with the Father. Your response is the similar as everyone else. Confess your sins, repent, and place your faith in Jesus as your only hope of salvation. I'm going to pray. As I pray, the brothers, sisters are going to come, play, respond as God leads you. Let's pray.